sisters. most of my research on like Monday so I was like frantically trying to reread my notes and refresh my memory (laughs) (laughs) oh I I got you I didn't do too much uh additional research but there's just a little bit of follow-up on what's happened since the trials but guess I'll introduce us welcome to Spear Sisters my name is Taryn I'm Amanda (laughs) and we're doing a continuation of the satanic panic this week yes uh Michelle remembers and then Taryn's gonna give us an update on uh the West Memphis three uh yes I've been listening to you're wrong about the uh book club um (laughs) oh it's a good one yeah it is very interesting and also very interesting conclusions are being drawn by Sarah yes um (laughs) She's possibly, like, more intelligent than the psychiatrist. I would have to agree. Um, And just the way she reads a lot of passages from the book, and um, it makes me not want to read the fucking book. Oh, no shit. I feel like I've already read it. Like Right. I mean, it just does not sound interesting whatsoever. Um, no. So let me, uh, let's get into it. Um, So my sources include Wikipedia, You're Wrong About podcast, and the Satanic Panic podcast. Which was another good one. Interesting. Um, Is that recent? I think it's from like 2017 or something. Okay. I don't remember. Maybe it could be more recent than that. Um, So Michelle Remembers is a book. And it was written, it was published in 1980. And it was co-written by a Canadian psychiatrist named Lawrence Pazder and his patient Michelle Smith. Which in itself, honestly, is kind of a weird um, crossing of a boundary. (laughs) Yeah. Between Dr. Patient. Um, so it was the first book written on the subject of satanic ritual abuse, which is actually a term coined by Dr. Pazder. Um, and he often refers to it as SRA, satanic ritual abuse. And it's uh, an important part of the controversies beginning during the 1980s regarding SRAs and recovered memory and, of course, the satanic panic. Right. Um. So, however, (laughs) investigators have been unable to corroborate many of the book's events. According to these investigators, the events described in the book were very unlikely and in some cases seemingly impossible. Like when literal biblical characters showed up in Michelle's life. No. Oh, is this Ezekiel? (laughs) No, um, I'll get into it. So it's, it was published as nonfiction, which means it's a true story. Okay. So, but the thing is, it's just them, it's literally just the their therapy sessions. And, so, like, it's written from, like, the third person's perspective, right? Yeah, so it's really strange. Like, <laughs> um, Sarah Marshall from You're Wrong About, she says stuff like, 
uh, she reads the passage where um, Dr. Pazder basically just describes himself. Lawrence Pazder was a lithe, athletic man. And it's just like, who talks about themselves like this? Like, it's who, so ridiculous. Who does it say wrote the book? Did they have like a ghostwriter? Or... No. Okay. So the it's two of them. By... Yes. Interesting. Okay. Uh-huh. I don't know why I thought they had like a ghostwriter kind of compiling all of their nope. conversations that had been recorded or something. Okay. No. So it's basically, okay. So the book Michelle Remembers is about the hypnotherapy sessions between Dr. Pazder and Michelle. And this all takes place in Canada, in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, so Michelle Smith had been a patient of Dr. Pazder's in the past. And at 27 years old, she had a miscarriage and was referred back to see him again for more talk therapy. So they already had a doctor-patient relationship. And at first, Dr. Pazder was like, well, we talked about everything, so you're cured. I don't understand why you need to see me again. But it's like, hey, dude, she just went through a traumatic fucking miscarriage, you insensitive piece of shit. <laughs> so Right. And, like, hello, isn't it, like, your job to fucking listen to your right. patients? Like Exactly. Um. So she comes into his office and she's like, I know I have something to tell you, but I can't remember what it is. So he suggests doing hypnotherapy and trying to dig up some memories that she might be repressing from her past. I haven't read the book, but apparently the majority of it takes place while Michelle is in this hypnotic state, which they refer to as her depths. Um, Also, it might be important to note that it's never explicitly stated in the book that she is under hypnosis. But that's an inference that most researchers can agree on. Mm-hmm. She's clearly not in her normal state of mind. Um, right. Because she's, like, behaving like a child, isn't she? Like Yes. Um, she reverts back to, like, a five-year-old. And Ooh. she speaks in, like, a child-like voice. Ooh. Yeah, it's gross. So creepy. That's so, like, exorcist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's uh, an important thing to note as well. The um, The exorcist and Rosemary's Baby were really popular at this time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and so was like uh the mcmartin preschool trial or whatever um uh, yes, yes. and so satanic panic was already on everybody's mind so you know of course dr pazder's like oh well let me just make up a big fucking lie and publish it in a book and create a bestseller yay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let me just profit off of this horrifying thing that's happening in the world i mean what an idiot he wasn't willing to profit off of his patients he literally told her to fuck herself like <laughs> Didn't we already talk about right. this? Like, didn't, aren't you cured? <laughs> right. Um, okay. So during their first session, she purportedly screamed for 25 minutes nonstop oh, and yes. eventually started speaking in the voice of a five-year-old. God, um, how scary would that according be? According to Dr. Pazder. Right. Um, now, Michelle never says, I'm five years old. Dr. Pazder just knows with his magical therapist abilities that she yeah, is right. not four, not six, but five years old. Mm-hmm. And over the course of 14 months, they end up doing over 600 hours of hypnotherapy. Ugh, 600 God. hours. They go for, like, six hours a session. I'm like, she must have bomb-ass insurance. And, like, also, how many hours do you work in a year? <laughs> right. I wouldn't work that many. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. How many hours? Like, what, 40, 80? So you're working 160 hours a month. And what would that be? Like, that's, like... I don't know, half a year? <laughs> well, it's over the course of 14 months. Okay. So, okay. I don't know. So, like, does he have any other patients? Is this his first and only patient? I don't understand. Anyway. Huh. So, let's talk about the um, satanic ritual abuse 
the term coined by Dr. Pazder himself. So Michelle's recovered memories are of satanic ritual abuse that occurred when she was five years old in 1954 and 1955 at the hands of her mother, whose name was Virginia Proby, and other people, all of whom Michelle said were members of a satanic cult in Victoria. Um, and she actually doesn't call it a satanic cult until... So she, like, brings in, like, a newspaper article about Satanism or something. And then, like, the next day, Dr. Pazder's like, so, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but I think these people that you're talking about in your hypnotherapy sessions might be from the Satanic Church. And she was like, you mean, like, Satanists? And it's like, wow, Dr. Pazder, if she wouldn't have brought that article in, would you have, like, connected the dots? Or, like, he's, he's, like, pretending like it was his idea. (laughs) yeah he's like he just like left the paper on his table or something and then he like sees it and he's like i've made the connection and it's like no you didn't anyway okay so according to michelle while she's hypnotized during the rituals michelle was allegedly tortured locked in cages sexually assaulted forced to participate in various rituals witnessed several animal and human sacrifices and was rubbed with the blood and body parts of various sacrificed infants and adults. Now, I don't know if I need to tell you this, but this should all be like a trigger warning, but I don't think any of this actually happened. So, And like, where did she say this was occurring? Somewhere in Victoria. Okay, but she didn't like know whose house, like it wasn't her house. So she speaks a lot about this round room and it seems kind of dungeony, okay. and like there's a part in the book where, um, like all the women in the cult start like hanging up these black curtains on the walls or something, like mm-hmm. decorating. Um, and she's like, "Oh, there's gonna be a party," <laughs> you know, in her five year old brain. Oh, um, but it's like, like there's hundreds of people in this cult, and it. I'll I'll talk about it later, but it's like ha- this couldn't have possibly been happening and the only person who has a name is her mother the only like identifiable character is her mother and then there's somebody named malachi but Uh that's uh just like i mean we don't really know who that is in real life it's just like there's not a person in her life who is named malachi Mm -hmm. um and other than that like none of the other hundreds of cult members have been identified so hmm um my next section is called shit that didn't happen (laughs) the whole book yes i just wrote michelle remembers no i'm just kidding Um, i mean i guess technically this did happen but like they're not real memories right and i'll get to that as well so (laughs) i have it all planned out Um, oh god so the first alleged ritual attended by michelle occurred in 1954 when she was five years old and the final one documented in, in the book was an 81-day ritual in 1955 that supposedly summoned Satan himself and involved the intervention of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Michael the Archangel. Archangel? Well, they were all invited. Is it Archangel or Archangel? I don't know. I don't care. I don't know either. Um, like, these biblical characters literally showed up in her life and helped her. At one point, Michelle told Dr. Pazder that she had had horns and a tail sewn onto her body but she didn't oh. have any scars or anything because michael the arch archangel archangel thing coincidentally removed the scars like oh how convenient um apparently he also well, blocked the memories of all the events until the time was right so like she didn't remember any of this until 
she had had her miscarriage and started talking to Dr. Pazder. Thanks to Michael. Thanks, Mikey. Um, so <laughs> my ne- I, I just really went with it. My next section is called Proof That Dr. Pazder Was a Dumbass and the Whole Thing Was Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mince words. No. So Dr. Pazder claimed that Michelle was abused by the Church of Satan, which he states is a worldwide organization predating the Christian church. And that right there just doesn't make any sense because no, there, not at all. there is no Satan without Christianity. Right, exactly. Yeah. So according to the Bible, another book I haven't read, <laughs> um, <laughs> hell was already an established thing when Lucifer was cast out by God. And he went down there and ended up being in charge of all the lesser demons. So maybe demons in hell predate the Christian church, but anything regarding Satan probably doesn't. Anyway, um, after the book's publication, Pazder withdrew his assertion that it was the Church of Satan that had abused Michelle when Anton LaVey, who founded the church years after the alleged events of Michelle Remembered, um, threatened to sue for libel. So mm-hmm. Dr. Pazder was like, oh, no, 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 I, 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 didn't, I, I never said it was explicitly the Church of Satan. I just meant, like, Satan worshippers. Um, okay. Anyway, so in an interview with Michelle's father... Jack Proby, he denied the allegations against Michelle's mother, Virginia, who died in 1964, and claimed that he could refute all the allegations in the book. Um, (laughs) He's like, no, I I was with Michelle the whole time. Like, none of this happened. Um, Right. The book also failed to mention either of Michelle's two sisters, Cheryl, younger, and Tertia, older. Like, of course, she was the middle child. (laughs) (laughs) michelle just not getting enough attention Uh uh-huh that's me um it also failed to mention that dr pazder and michelle both divorced their spouses and ended up marrying each other yes which is also a huge overstep of dr patient boundaries now was that before or after the book that was after the book book and then they got married i think so okay um so let's see there was also no mention of any attempt at police investigations to verify any of the book's accusations. So it must not have been that big of a deal. Like, anyone who's ever been to therapy knows that when there is ever a threat of harm to yourself or others, the therapist is required to step in. And this includes child abuse that happened a long time ago, you know? Like, they have to investigate that shit. So technically, he should have gone to her mother or opened a police investigation on well, her mother? Well, her mom was already dead. Oh, by the time okay, okay. this was all, you know, by the time she was talking about it, but yeah. um, you know, something they should have been investigating like a satanic cult that's like murdering babies and little kittens and things. Right. It's fucking weird, right? Right. Um. <laughs> so let's see. At one point in Michelle's recollection, she said that there was like some orgy happening that her mom was partaking in. No big deal if that's true. Just don't let your five-year-old attend the orgy. Like, duh. Who's bringing their baby right. to the orgy? I know, it's gross. Um, anyway, Michelle, in her five-year-old voice, which I'm not going to do because that's gross, said that there was a lump under her mom's skirt and she thought it was hurting her mom, so Michelle started beating the shit out of the lump. Turns out the lump was a woman and Michelle, with all the strength of a toddler, had murdered this woman that was most likely giving her mom head. Oops. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So the cult knew that they had to get rid of the body, so they put the body and Michelle, for some reason, in a car and sent it over, like, a cliff or something. But Michelle, as a five-year-old, had miraculously survived. 
And then investigators... What the fuck? Uh-huh, yeah. So investigators were, like, looking into this, and there was no record of a car crash or anything in that area at that point in time. So I call bullshit. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So it wasn't, like, a group effort to kill this woman. I but think... she is claiming that they did kill someone? I'm not sure. I don't remember if it was a group effort or not. I know she's the one who started beating the shit okay, out, of the, yeah, yeah. out of the lump. Um, and then I don't remember if it was just her that did it as a five. Like, I can't imagine a five-year-old beating an adult to death. Um, right, because I was listening to You're Wrong About, and I thought she blamed herself because she was the one that started right, beating so the she, person. That's another thing. So she, either she did it herself or she started it, and then everybody else was like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's beat the shit out of this person. I don't fucking know. Either way, she claims there was a murder, but... And right. then they tried to, like, dispose of the body by just driving it off a cliff. And they're like, Michelle, we hate you, so we're going to put you in the car, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So, some other bullshit. Michelle's former neighbors, teachers, and friends were all interviewed, and yearbooks from her elementary school were reviewed, and there was no indication of Michelle being absent from school or missing for lengthy periods of time, including the alleged 81-day nonstop ritual at the end of the book. <laughs> Good um, God, this is a stretch. Yeah, it's also noteworthy that none of the other hundreds of members of this alleged cult were ever identified, aside from Michelle's mom. I already talked about that. It's also really crazy because people were using this book as almost like training for like social mm-hmm. workers and therapists for like things to look out for. Like if kids are talking about these types of activities going on in their home, it could be you know right. It can't whatever. just be you know mommy hit me. It's mommy hit me because she worships Satan. Exactly. It's like, for why? <laughs> right. What does right. Satan why have to do with this? I don't know, exactly. just to make it scarier. Um, and I just feel like, how is it that so many people were reading this book and not being like, not even thinking to look into it? I understand, I guess, the internet wasn't a thing, so it was more difficult to get your hands on resources about personal, like, individual people. Right, but you would but... think, like, like they try to get like cops involved or something investigators i don't right. know if they were really taking these accusations seriously don't you think that someone should have like seriously looked into mm-hmm. it well carry on um so this book came out during the time when shit like the exorcist and rosemary's baby were popular and people were already concerned about secret blood drinking cannibalistic cults um, also, during the 60s, Dr. Pazder, the traveled and cultured man he is, he was spending time in um, West Africa. And so he was under the impression that African tribes were very similar to these satanic cults. And he used his gross, weird racism to make this unlikely connection. Like, <laughs> I'm traveled. What? I'm traveled and cultured. And I've seen how savages behave when I was in Africa. So I'm an expert on satanic cults now. Like, <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So, some consequences. Dr. Pazder was considered to be an expert (laughs) in the topic of satanic ritual abuse, a term he literally made up. Um, And with the sudden emergence of satanic ritual abuse cases during the 80s, likely due to, in part, to the publication of Michelle Remembers, um, Pazder's expertise was highly requested. In 1984, Pazder was a consultant in the McMartin preschool trial, which featured allegations of satanic ritual abuse are you kidding me he was uh-huh. um i don't know if he like partook in the trial or if he was just like someone that they talked to to get information on how to like deal with the kids or what what to look for do you remember 
the expert that they had in the West Memphis <laughs> his fake college degree. No, had. the occult expert. Oh, remember, I told you about the occult expert that they brought in for the prosecution. And he had, like, a mail-ordered degree. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> and didn't take any classes for it. That's what this reminds right, me he of. Literally, like, that's who they're having. Yeah, he just bought, like, a certificate in the mail. <laughs> yes. He's like, but couldn't you just have, like, experience in life? Right. Oh, my God. For real. <laughs> I mean, that's basically the same thing. Yes. They're both equally experienced in the <laughs> Which occult. is not very. <laughs> you know who was yes. experienced in the occult? Yeah. Michelle? Alistair Crowley. Someone we've done an episode on. <laughs> that is true. He was a master. Yep. Um, <laughs> a master of the magic. So Pazder also appeared in on the first major news reporting concerning Satanism, which was an episode of 2020 in 1985. Uh, so everyone was watching that shit. By 1987, yep. Pazder reported that he was spending a third of his time consulting on Satanic ritual abuse cases. Like, it wouldn't have been so widespread if you hadn't published a bunk ass book about it. Right. It's like he literally made mm-hmm. an audience for yeah. this specific topic, you know, like, and then he became the primary person that got paid to talk about said topic. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I hate this man. Because I feel like at this time, too, like daytime talk shows were a big thing as well. Yeah. You know, and they were like, I feel like bringing like ex Satan, ex Satanists, or you know what I mean, onto their show. And I don't know. I feel like that was like another mm-hmm. big thing that really scared mom and grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They really, I mean, mom really let me get into like witchcraft and shit. So at the time, I think it was a lot scarier. Yes. And then yeah. when she realized it was like not harmful. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, I mean, she's like, well, magic isn't fucking real, so do whatever you want. Right. <laughs> Satan's not real either, so I don't really care. These people are just fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. So, with people suddenly being prosecuted for satanic ritual abuse, prosecutors use the book as a guide, like you said, when preparing case- cases against alleged Satanists. Um, prior to the start of the Kern County child abuse cases, which is another we should go over, So prior to those cases, several local social workers had attended a training seminar that listed satanic ritual abuse as a major element of child sexual abuse and used Michelle Remembers as training material. Again, just because a child is being abused doesn't mean the people abusing them are worshipping Satan. (laughs) I don't understand. This is like such a ridiculous correlation. It's like people can just be shitty people that happen to abuse kids. Like Satan doesn't have to have anything to mm-hmm. do with it. It's it's very weird. So, yeah. So <laughs> Now you just have to be a Democrat and uh, you're automatically right. like sacrificing Yeah, according to Q. <laughs> yep. A cabal oh of Satan-worshipping child-molesting Democrats. <laughs> Jesus, fuck, what? <laughs> right. Right, it's like, I don't think Jeffrey Epstein, he hung out with both sides. Yes, he did. He wasn't like discriminatory. He was very bipartisan. He, he just yes. loves... Young pussy and money. Men with mm-hmm. money. And, yeah, girls under yeah. 18. They call them underage women. Do you mean children? <laughs> I know. I was just watching. This is off topic. Well, it's about Jeff. He, there was something that came out pretty recently that I watched today, actually. And the woman, there was, like, a 
she was actually a family friend of Ghislaine Maxwell's. And she said that it was like ridiculous that in the early 2000s, he had like 14 girls come forward in Florida accusing him of sexual abuse. And he got off with one, well, he went to jail for 18 months for one count of prostitution. And the family friend of Ghislaine's was like, that's not prostitution. If you are under 18, you cannot be a prostitute. You're a child. (laughs) That is child abuse that's child sex trafficking yes exactly so she's like how did this even happen how did how did this happen 14 girls who were at the time under 18 and i don't know you're absolutely right that doesn't make any fucking sense (laughs) i mean we could do another episode on those people too oh my god yes i do want to do a deep dive into Ghislaine's family life because her dad died mysteriously in a boat like a drowning accident Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't buy it. Anyway. No, she's like, my dad didn't commit suicide. He was killed. So even she thinks he was Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so back to Michelle. <laughs> and yep. her horrifying Sorry. fucking doctor. So this <laughs> is what I think. So Michelle had Tell just me. undergone a traumatic miscarriage. And she already mm-hmm. has a pre- predisposition to mental health issues. So it's common sense to infer that maybe she was just going through some shit, like postpartum depression or something. Um, And a lot of the stuff she talked about during her hypnotherapy sessions had to do with, like, mother-daughter relationships and the murder of infants and sexual assault, which could be directly related to the loss of her unborn baby and the medical procedure she had to go to to remove the fetus. Like, that shit is traumatic as hell. And Dr. Pazder, a typical idiot misogynist, didn't make the link in his own mind. He didn't think the shit that Michelle was saying could be symbolic in any way. It had to be literal. Right. And it had to involve Satan. In conclusion, he's a dumbass. <laughs> yes. As, is this man still alive? He's passed, but um, Michelle is still alive. I don't think Michelle Smith okay. is her real name, though. How old was he when he died? What happened to him? Um, Do we let me look it up. I'm not sure. Um, just because I feel like it would be interesting to hear, like, what her take is now. Like, does she still, you know, think that she was a part of this? Because I just listened to the episode of You're Wrong About where she actually read, like, an excerpt where Michelle was describing essentially, like, being in, like, what is that called? Like, when you're coming out of anesthesia and... um you know, you're still kind of, like, hazy or whatever. And she was talking about, like, women putting, like, probing her with things and walking in and out of the room Mm. and, like, saying words that she doesn't understand. And, you know, like, it sounds like she, like, she, as a five-year-old, is allegedly describing a satanic ritual. But if you think about it in medical terms, if she's just regressing to a time when she was, like, you know, under anesthesia because she had this, um... The baby died. What the fuck? Uh, My yeah. Miscarriage. She had, she had this miscarriage. And, you know, I feel like there's got to be some sort of, like, after procedure. You know what I yeah. mean? I feel like just to make sure that you're still safe and healthy. And so I feel like maybe she was just, you know, so 
traumatized by this experience that she was coming out of her anesthesia or, you know, she was heavily medicated or something. And she just was in denial that this was happening, you know, and of course he would never have experienced anything mm-hmm. like that being a man, you know, but it's like, if you think about it from a woman's perspective, it legit sounds like you're giving birth or, you know, you're in a, like at a gynecologist's office or having some sort of, you know, procedure done. And, but to him, how would he not put this right. together? Because he's <laughs> stupid. And he's, I don't know. I don't know. It's just that weird stretch, that weird mental gymnastics that people were doing where right. it, it couldn't have just been trauma or, you know, it couldn't have been like weird symbolic memories or repressed feelings about her miscarriage. It had to be literal Satan worshiping, child molesting, crazy people. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Okay, so I, now did she put in her book that she had a miscarriage? I'm sorry. Yeah, she. You. I think she did. Um, okay, so it is mentioned. Yeah, he died in 2004 at age 68 of heart failure. Okay, so not like mysteriously no. or anything. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Interesting. I wonder what she does with her life now. Um, probably rolls around in piles of money. <laughs> <laughs> she's a she's an author she's a new york times bestseller (laughs) (laughs) good lord so yeah they definitely had like a big impact i would say on a lot of you know the situation at the time because this was written right in the peak of right in the (laughs) thick of it and i feel like a lot of people were using it as like a legit factual reference guide you know as to well this is what happened Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I I just, I don't know. It's crazy to me that no one looked past this. But I guess at the time, if that's, you know, what you're being told and sold and. Yeah. Shit's fucked up. So what do you think? Are you going to read it? (laughs) It's actually out of print, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Huh. So you can't get it at, like, the library or anything? Uh, you might be able to get it at the library. You just can't buy, like, a brand new copy. Right. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess at least they, you know, aren't trying to peddle these ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they are, but they, they, like, rebranded because, you know, Sabrina Oh, is God, cool. Sabrina's so cool. So... <laughs> right. I mean, praise Satan. <laughs> Hail Hecate. <laughs> so... <laughs> all right will you update um, us on um the west memphis three what happened after the trials i will and i will also say that even to this day um damien eccles lawyer is still trying to get the current judge to okay them to do like further dna testing on like the shoes that they found and the clothes that they found and that kind of stuff to see if they can find any dna traces from you know anyone that could have possibly been in the area at the time and they're just blocking them every step of the way just being like this isn't worth looking into like you know you got what you wanted your defendant is you know your client is out of jail like just kind of blowing them off not worth the money but it's like no one is in jail or serving time or being punished for the death of these, these mm-hmm. three boys. So anyway, that is like the current most up-to-date situation. But from the time that they were released through like around 2013 was like a big year for confessions. Um, some new information. 
information came out. Um, so I got a lot of information. Amanda, there's a really interesting website I'd never heard of called famoustrials.com. It's a site that is maintained by professors at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School. It is super interesting. It has like a bunch of different trials that we have covered before. I'm, the McMartin case, I'm pretty sure, What's is also it called? on there. Um, it's called famoustrials.com, <laughs> okay. which sounds very dry, but holy fuck it has so much information like it has all of the police records like everything that was written from the police like just handwritten notes that some of the moms wrote like just anything it has so much information it's crazy I was like overwhelmed <laughs> with how many links they had um I was like holy fuck this is a 78 page oh, no. like affidavit and I have to read the whole thing but it's like in handwritten no. cursive I'm like Jesus yes so that's where I got a lot of this information from. That's rough. Now, John Mark, John Mark Byers, but it was well worth it because it was very interesting. He was Chris Byers' stepfather, and he was a he was definitely a shady motherfucker. And I don't know if you ever saw like um, Paradise Lost, but he was very strange looking. And I don't actually think that he was involved with the boys' murders, but he was a shitty okay. person regardless. Um, so he may have like known who did it. Um, in the Paradise Lost documentaries. He claims to be a member of the white supremacist group, the oh, Brotherhood, no. and was the master of ceremonies for his Masonic Lodge Ugh. in 1991. I know the Brotherhood motto is God forgives, Brotherhood doesn't. And the group is associated with many violent crimes and murders. There's like a website that has all the different things that they're possibly involved in. Melissa Byers, um, who is his wife and Chris's mom, she also had a rough go as well. Her uh, first husband, Ricky, who is um, Chris's biological father stated that she was a heroin addict from the time she was 12 and she was in and out of rehab, like her whole life. I mean, it's sad to say and like no judgment, but like um, in March, 1996, she was found dead at 40 years old with, um, I don't know how to say this. Dilated in her blood. It's um, like an opioid. So investigators showed up at the house at 9.40 p.m. while Mark Byers, her husband at the time, stood outside the home with his new girlfriend, Mm. Mandy. They found drug paraphernalia, alcohol, and seven different prescriptions with Melissa's name on it at the crime scene. Um, Her cause of death is still undetermined. Apparently, the day Melissa died, she found out about Mark's affair with Mandy and told him that she was going to divorce him. So I'm sure, you know, things were tumultuous with their marriage. Things were not going great. Mark and his colorful criminal uh, had a very colorful criminal record. Um, in addition to being an addict and admitting using basically all types of drugs throughout his life, here are a few of his other less savory incidents. Um, in 1973, he threatened his parents with oh, a shit. butcher knife and proceeded to threaten to cut the officer's throat upon his arrival at the scene. He was known to have beat his first wife, Melissa, and his children. He was also on probation. Oh, so all three of them. He was known to beat his first wife, Melissa, Chris's mom, and his children. He was also on probation in the 80s for threatening to kill his first wife. He was also really into stealing jewelry. In 1990, he was sued for the disappearance of $65,000 in jewelry, as well as in 1992 for the disappearance of eleven grand in gold watches. He was not held liable in 90 and confessed about the watches in 1992, but no charges were brought. I'm like, what the fuck? This guy's got to have, like, an outstanding record of, like, warrants for some of this shit. How are you not getting him? He also wrote that at least, he also wrote at least 13 bad checks in 1992 four with no time served for that um mark and mark and melissa were both put in jail in 1994 for stealing twenty thousand dollars worth of antiques and then burning down the motorhome that they robbed 
Um, so this was uh, the year after the their mm-hmm. son had died. Um, Mark was also accused of giving a miner a knife and telling him to fight another miner with a twenty-two rifle. Oh my point god! He was ordered to. Yes, he was only ordered to pay the $2,000 hospital bills, but didn't go to jail at all. Um, his neighbor requested a restraining order in 1984 when Mark bruised his child and threatened him, later finding bullet holes in their trailer. In 1989, he sold Xanax to an undercover officer and was sentenced to a total of eight years for breaking probation, of which she served 15 months. Uh, there were several neighbors that reported in, to investigators who questioned them door-to-door after the murders who spoke of Mark Byers' violent habits, especially those who had witnessed him beating his son, Chris. Chris had an older brother, Ryan, whose friend told police that he witnessed Mark beating a naked Chris with a belt, stating that he was sobering, sobbing and covered in welts. Um, while autopsy reports uh, passed scarring on Chris's body, it was not brought up in court that these were most likely from his own father. So even in his autopsy, they were, they talked about like, um, you know, scars from like previous incidents. Um, Mark Byers gave an interview to police on May 19th, some of which was corroborated, some of which wasn't, but at least he gave an interview because Terry Hobbs never <laughs> fucking did. Um, he's the father of one of the other boys throughout his retelling of the day of May 5th there are at least five neighbors and friends who Mark claims he saw or claimed to have not seen him at all or during a different time of that evening Um, some parts of his story line up and while other parts just don't make any sense despite Mark Byers shady past and white supremacy tendencies as of 2012 when the West Memphis three were released he believed in their innocence and had moved on to the Terry Mm -hmm. Hobbs train Mark Byers actually died in a car crash in Tennessee this past summer um, in June 2020 at the age of 63 um so i i don't think he was the person who did it but he was like it's just so sad like these boys lives were just horrible they were only eight and like their parents just sucked (laughs) um and the person i really think did it um is terry hobbs very much alive and i'm not afraid to say it because i think most people are pretty like comfortable stating that they think terry hobbs did it um i i got this from a website called the west memphis puzzle uh, blog and again this was another very interesting one that had like a shit ton of information um so just kind of a quick rundown on the key players here from last week um because they're kind of they were kind of like side players in last week's episode but there's terry hobbs he's steve branch's stepfather and pamela branch's husband so terry and pamela were steve's parents then there was his sister amanda hobbs and um she was four years old at the time so four years younger than Mm -hmm. steve branch michael hobbs is terry's nephew he does an affidavit that's very important that i'm going to get to uh david jacoby is terry's friend Mm -hmm. and lover and suspected to be with uh terry the day of the murders it was kind of like well known that he was bisexual but people just like didn't talk about it uh then there's jolyn mccoffey and that's pamela's sister who lived with terry and pam at the time of the murders um billy wayne stewart is terry's drug dealer who plays a key in this because he saw him the day of the murders benny guy is another one of billy's friend uh or I'm sorry, another one of Terry's friends who was who also saw him the day of the murders. And then there's these two other guys, LG Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas. They're teenagers who were seen with Terry and are known to be pretty involved with the murders. So Terry and his wife Pamela had separated in 1993 and Pamela went to stay with her parents while Terry left to stay in Hardy, Arkansas, 120 miles away from West Memphis, 
conveniently avoiding being brought in for any type of questioning. Um, Pam's family was, uh, they basically accused Terry from the get-go, probably due to his abusive track record. Uh, He would beat his wife, his daughter, and this also eventually resulted in a restraining order and uh, many police complaints with their neighbors. So his daughter actually has a restraining order on him. Um, the accusations, yeah, the accusations got so heated that in November 1994, Terry hit Pam, his wife. Pam called her brother, Jackie, and when Jackie confronted him, Terry oh, shot shit. him in the stomach. He sur- yeah, he survived for 10 years but died during a follow-up surgery. Just another murder by Terry, just, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years delayed. Um, in addition to the restraining order from his own daughter, Terry was arrested in 2003 for drug possession. Um West of Memphis is a 2012 documentary by Peter Jackson in which some interesting information about Terry Hobbs' involvement in the murders comes about. There's a note, uh, or they note a hair that was found on one of the shoelaces used to tie up the boys, and it matched Terry Hobbs' DNA, but it also matched (laughs) 1.5% of the population's DNA. So literally, it could be like a ton of people, but it is very interesting that he happens to be part of that 1.5%, yes? Um. While another hair matched his friend, David Jacoby, his lover. Um, Of course, he didn't volunteer any of his DNA to compare it to, so investigators had to sneak it. They sat outside of his house and got some of his cigarette butts that Mm -hmm. he threw into his yard. Um, Pam's sister, Joe Lynn, states that she remembers Terry doing laundry at odd hours of the night. (laughs) Quote, laundry. um, (laughs) On the night of the murders. Yes. Pam and Jolyn also say that they found Stevie's prized pocket knife in Terry's oh, yeah, bedside I drawer. That. I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that. Yeah. Uh, Terry's nephew, Michael Hobbs, told three friends. Um, okay. So this is like a third, account, like a third hand account. Terry's nephew, Michael Hobbs, told three friends what he knew of that night. And those three friends went and told filmmakers um, for this West of Memphis documentary in 2012 that Michael told them terry killed the boys and it was a closely guarded family secret so i know this is like a third-hand account but many people tell the same story so it's just Mm -hmm. take it for what it is i guess um throughout the documentary todd moore michael moore's father um that was the other third boy that was murdered says that his son was at terry's house frequently and the hairs could have come from any of those times so the Moore family actually still thinks that the three teenage boys were the ones that did it and think oh, that they shit. should still be in jail. Yeah. Interesting, right? Um, he, and as I mentioned, the DNA evidence was finally able to be tested in 2007 at the request of Eccles' private detective team. Terry was subsequently interrogated by the West Memphis Police Department on, in June 2007 about the events that evening, which began when he dropped his wife off at work at Catfish at 5 p.m., um, he goes on to describe an impossible scenario between five and nine and changes his story multiple times. So this was in 2007. They're bringing him in to talk about a murder that happened in 1999. So this is what Terry finally tells police. He got away all those years without ever giving a statement about what, where he was the night of his son's that murder. Is Isn't that fucking nuts. crazy? <laughs> yes. So, finally, they get him in 2007 (laughs) because Damien Eccles' fucking private investigator was like, no, no, you really need to compare this evidence so I can get the fuck out of jail. Um, So, Terry finally goes on to describe an impossible scenario um, between the hours that the the boys 
ended up dead. Um, he states that he was searching the neighborhood with his daughter Amanda when they came upon Dana Moore and the fa- the mother of one of Michael Moore, one of the other boys, and then they went to her house. Um, Mark Byers arrived at the Moore's home around 6 p.m. when they realized their children were missing together. This is impossible as Mark Byers didn't even file the missing police report until about mm-hmm. 8.30 at night. Um, Mark also signed an affidavit stating that he didn't see Terry during this time. Terry says that he was in Robin Hood Woods between 6 and 6.30 with David Jacoby, his boyf, where he describes there being 20 to 40 people searching on four-wheelers and bikes. Um, David actually signed an affidavit stating that he was not in the woods with Terry, and they only briefly drove around with him um, to search for the children that evening. He picked up his wife from work around 9.30, which was the first time that she heard her son was missing. In another interview, he states there were around 100 people searching, which is simply false, since it wasn't reported until dark, and the search didn't really begin until the next morning, if you remember. Um, Throughout the ordeal, both Pam and Terry make contradicting claims. Um, They both described to investigators the spot where the bodies were found as giving them this creepy bad feeling, stating that they were in the area around 10 p.m. the evening of the murders. However, during their testimony during the Eccles and Baldwin trials, Pam claimed that she had never even searched that area. that's not good. So, I know. Um, In November 2008, Terry Hobbs sued (laughs) Dixie Chick singer Natalie Maines Pazder for defamation. Did you hear about this? Dr. Pazder? No, I didn't. What the fuck? I know. All right. So let me tell you. Natalie was a supporter of the West Memphis Three, and she attended a rally in Little Rock, Arkansas, where she presented recent findings pointing at Terry (laughs) being the prime suspect. I know. The lawsuit required Terry to drudge up old criminal records and defend his past poor behavior and uh, (laughs) terrible life choices, as well as the details of May 5th, 1993. So this really puts a spotlight on him and his background. He was just as bad of a person as uh, Mark Beyer. This also resulted in depositions from Pam's family, who were not fans. Uh, Here are some of what they said about good old Terry. You know, this is rough. JoLynn, Pam's sister, and Stevie's aunt stated that he sexually molested his daughter, Amanda, and used drugs such as weed, coke, and meth. She reiterated him doing laundry on that evening, stating that Terry washed his clothes, bed linens, and curtains at an odd hour. And he was not just washing dirty laundry, but also taking clothes out of the dresser drawers and washing those too. Isn't it? She also reminded them of the knife that they found in Terry's drawer, stating he told her of his experience as a butcher, gave him the skills to make the cut on Chris Byers' genitals. He said that to her. Uh, He was like, he was bragging about cuts that were so ragged that they literally thought they were Wow, you're such a talented fucking butcher. Dumbass. I'm just like, come on. Like, I know that's like a terrible, like, thought to have, but it's like, dude, you're bragging about this. Come on. In the 2007 police interview, Terry denied keeping anything of the boys after their death and stated that he didn't recall the knife they were referring to. However, in the 2008 deposition with the Dixie Chicks, Terry stated he took the knife away from Stevie years before because it wasn't safe for his young stepson to own a pocket knife. Uh, Terry admitted to drug, drug use, gave contradictory stories about the knife, denied doing laundry that evening, and denied discussing the murders with JoLynn. So that's how that ended up. What a mess. Um, Judy Sadler, I oh, I know. Here's what other family members have to say about him. So Judy Sadler, Stevie's other aunt, stated that Stevie told her Terry locked him in a closet after beating him. He also forced Stevie and Amanda to watch porn and threatened to kill Pam's family members if he told her. 
Uh, Terry forced Stevie to sexually molest his sister Ugh. and watch him masturbate. Terry denied all of these accusations, but they definitely don't make him look great. Uh, Sheila Hicks, Stevie's aunt, and Ter- said Terry uh, whipped Stevie, leaving bell- leaving welts, and forced him to play oh, dead what? cockroach, where he would make him lie on his back with his legs and arms raised, and when he would grow tired and lower them, Terry That's would That's not a fun him. game. Stevie... No! Stevie had told his aunt Sheila he witnessed Terry strangling Pam, and that in 1987, she saw Terry simulating sex with his 10-year-old daughter, Amanda. Stevie's grandmother, Mary Hicks, Pam's mom, also agreed that Terry was sexually abusive to the children, stating that Amanda told her that Terry stuck oh, his finger no. in her booty. Not the booty. I know. His own daughter, Amanda, gave a devastating plea regarding his abuse, all of which he denied. Sharon Nelson, Terry's girlfriend, said that Hobbs claimed he found the bodies before police, but oh, left them and convenient. didn't say anything, which he denied. Terry's elderly neighbor, Mildred French, stated that he sexually attacked her in the 80s and Not Mildred. killed her cat. And so she, yeah. so she pressed charges. Terry didn't, didn't deny the attack and instead dismissed it as being ancient history that oh he went God. to counseling for. I know! Who is this man? Other interesting things that came out due to the Pazder case included Terry had his teeth pulled by a dentist in the mid-90s, exempting him from the imprint comparison to bite marks on on the boys. Um, Terry has never taken and refuses to take a polygraph about the murders. He also refuses to give any finger or footprints. He was um, also accused of molesting his first son from his first marriage. So this was, like, clearly a thing, like a fucking habit of his. I mean, I'm not saying that a diddler I mean, will be a murderer, but... Regardless of whether or not habits. he did murder those three boys, he's clearly done lots of horrible things and should probably be in jail anyway. I was just going to say, none of these accusations That's sent fucking him to jail. On December 1st, 2009, a judge ruled in favor of Kazder and the Dixie Chicks, stating Terry needed to cover her $17,000 in legal fees, to which Terry to which Terry responded, I don't give a damn what that judge says. I'm not paying the Dixie Chicks a thing. All right, we're getting there. I'm almost done. In 2013, Billy Wayne Stewart, Terry's drug dealer, and his friend Benny Guy signed detailed affidavits about what they had gathered about the night through first and secondhand accounts. Mostly that of Terry's nephew, Michael, and Billy's friend, Buddy Lucas. So this, like, third-hand account is the only one that's, like, in an affidavit, like, stating this is what happened. But, then, but you know, it's he said, he said, yeah. you know, she said, whatever. So this is mostly a third account of Terry's nephew, Michael, what he said. So after selling drugs to him on and off from 1991 to 1993... Billy Wayne Stewart discovered that Terry was bisexual. He had a thing for younger boys. Billy always declined letting his son go to his house to hang out with his son, despite the fact that they were, like, friends. Um, He stated that on May 5th, 1993, he was in his driveway with his friend, Benny Guy, working on his truck. Terry showed up with David Jacoby and two teenagers from a local trailer park, LG Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas, to buy some pot when he noticed Terry making out with David in the truck across the street. In April 1995, Buddy Lucas, another low IQ individual who often hung out with Billy because he felt bad (laughs) for the lonely dumbass, told Stewart of the rest of their evening. So according to Buddy, 
They smoked weed and drank whiskey before heading to the Blue Beacon Woods. This is when Terry told the two teenage boys to get out of the car and wrestle, which quickly turned sexual. This is when Chris, Michael, and Stevie, the three boys, appeared on their bikes, and Terry screamed, get them, little fuckers. While Jacoby beat one of the kids, Hobbs ordered Buddy and LG, (laughs) the two wrestling teenagers, to pull off his pants. And according to Buddy, Terry Hobbs walked over to the boy that Mr. Jacoby had been beating and repeatedly bit the boy's penis and scrotum and then cut his genitals. Terry then said that the other two boys needed to be killed because of what they had witnessed. So he and David Jacoby killed them both and took them in their clothes to the water. When Billy Stewart called and told the West West Memphis police investigator Bill Sanders to tell him the story Buddy had told him, he never returned his calls. Buddy also told the same story to Benny Guy, who sent a detailed letter to prosecutor Scott Ellington in 2012, but Ellington never responded. Terry and his wife Pamela had separated in 1983, and Pamela went to stay with her parents, while Terry... Um, oh, I already said this. I'm sorry. I don't know why I copied and pasted that twice. But anyway, um, this guy, Scott Ellington, is still the hmm. prosecutor today. And he is the one that uh, Damien Eccles' lawyer is trying to convince to do DNA testing. Now, I don't know what the fuck connection Terry Hobbs has with this police department that they, like, refuse right. to accuse him of this. That they, that they are, like, cool with him being accused of all of this sexual assault and abusing children and beating them. And, you know, like, I feel like several people have come forward saying this. Whether or not he actually committed the murders, he clearly did some terrible things. How is it that nobody's yeah, looking into this up. guy? Like, I just... It, it is. He has to have some sort of relationship with either the judge at the time, the prosecutor that they currently have, like... It's just so strange that they are, like, I I feel like on one hand, we have the satanic panic where they're so scared of children, uh, sexual, satanic ritual uh, abuse. what do they call it? <laughs> Sacri- yes, yes. And here we have Terry Hobbs, who is unritualistically mm-hmm. just molesting underage children. Like, But he doesn't listen to Metallica, I don't understand. so he so must many not people be are... guilty of it. <laughs> It's just so crazy that all of these family members are like, yeah, Amanda came to me and said that his dad stuck his finger in her booty. And, you know, um, Chris came forward and said this and that. And, you know, it's just like, it's just fucked up that all of these people know about it. But because it's not like a satanic ritual situation, it's just like, that's just like normal everyday molestation. We don't care about that. (laughs) Like, it is just so strange. So anyway... I feel like Terry is absolutely... I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> he might try to sue you like the Dixie guilty. Chicks. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't have much of a platform compared to the Dixie Chicks, so I don't think it's that big of a deal. But, I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like that's kind of the consensus. You know, on the internet and everything, everyone seems to think, like, this is the guy, but they're not doing anything to push this case forward. They're just cool with no one being prosecuted for this. I mean, one of their fathers already, I mean, they're in their 60s now. He was 63. He just died this summer. I mean, it was a car accident. It wasn't like a, you know, um, natural causes, but like they are getting older and they're not Mm -hmm. going to serve any fucking time. Whoever did this, you know, it's been 93, 27 years. It's, been almost 30 fucking years since this happened and no one Mm -hmm. is going to jail for it you know yeah 
that doesn't add up. <laughs> so anyway, do you agree? Do you think I it was mean, Terry? It probably was. <laughs> it probably was, in all honesty. Like, I don't know. To me, that just, it seems like a realistic mm-hmm. account of what fucking happened. You know what I mean? Like, they did not find any, like, ritualistic... No, he's just an asshole. Um, evidence. He's just an asshole with anger management problems and weird that, gay tendencies that yes, he just can't yes. accept. A legit <sighs> Yes. Oh, God. All around, these yeah. boys had a really rough life, and I feel like, to be honest, maybe they're in a better place. <laughs> like... Oh. I don't know. I don't. It's the only thing I can right. say to make myself feel better about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, really fucked honestly, up. And that's, their their upbringing was. Tough. That makes me sad that the real culprit is not being held accountable. Is he just like out and about still molesting kids, or what is he doing? Um, as far as I'm aware, yes, he still Great. lives in the area. Um. I, I, yeah, I don't think he ever, like, left the, I mean, I know he was, remember, he was living, like, 100 miles away or whatever when it happened, Mm -hmm. because him and his wife were having a fight, but I, so, I assume that's, like, where he lives, within the West Memphis area, but, um, yeah, nothing else has come about, like, that I could find since this will, like, activate (laughs) it. What an evil, vile man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, should we do um a part three? We certainly could. I kind of want to do, do the um, McMartin preschool. Okay, if you want to do McMartin preschool, sure. I can do. The yeah, I don't know Kern anything County. about the Kern County case. Um, Kern County case. <laughs> so Kern County is the um if you want to before i tell you all about it you can listen to a very deep dive podcast called convicted um I, uh, did you listen to i listened one? to convicted but i was also doing housework so i don't know <laughs> if i wasn't paying attention all the way yeah yeah it was a good podcast though um no yeah that's what that yeah i want to say there were like maybe eight or ten episodes it wasn't super long um, but they do like a really big deep dive into Kern County, like the satanic panic thing in season two. I think they had like one episode okay. about the McMartin case um, because that was very like Kern County is very close to where okay. the McMartin case. They were both in California. Um, so I yeah, they're kind of connected for sure. Um, but it's <clears throat> it seems like a lot of like wealthy neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are just like scared. Uh, sure. you know, stranger danger, God forbid, gay people, and, <laughs> and you know, the AIDS. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that sounds good. I feel like there's there were quite a few families involved in, in the current case, uh, the current county mm-hmm. cases. I feel so. I don't know how like deep dive I will go into them, but okay, <laughs> I'll give you a nice overview. All right, this will be good. I'm excited. God. Hey, thanks. All you right, too. Sounds good. Good job this week. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. All right. Well, sisters, sisters, unite. unite. Hey. <laughs>